Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Hey folks, today I have Stephen Benson. He's the CEO of Badger Maps. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Steve, could you tell us a little bit about what problem does your company solve? Well, the thing that we do is we help field salespeople. We bring the data that field salespeople are interested in. So usually customer data, information about people they'd like to sell to. We bring it into a mapping environment and we bring it from their CRM or perhaps a spreadsheet, wherever their data is right now. We bring it into a mapping environment where they can view their territory on a map. They can interact with the information. They can filter it. They can colorize by whatever data they have. And then the reason they want to do this is because if you're a field salesperson, when you go out in the field, you have to like decide who you're going to spend time with, which customers. And so that you have to have kind of a schedule or a route for the day and figure out who's going to be on that route. You don't want it, that route to zigzag all around the city. And so we basically, that's a problem that field salespeople all have. And we make that really easy and quick for them to do right on their mobile device. Yeah, I love your tagline. Sell 20% more and drive 20% less. How do you guys track that? How do you know that they're actually selling more and driving less? Well, the nice thing about salespeople is most of their behavior, their results are generally tracked. So a company, because they have to pay the salesperson by the mile for the wear and tear on their vehicle, they track how many miles they're driving. And when you put us in place, you can actually see that go down and we just ask them how much it went down. But it's a line item for, if you have a big field sales team, a line item is what you're paying for gas, just like any other line item. And then same thing for sales. People obviously track their sales. And so we can put our stuff in place. And the sales is kind of obvious. Why they do better is if you give them a tool to focus on the right customers and save a bunch of time. And if you don't know field salespeople, they spend a ton of time on figuring out who they're going to see and kind of figuring out their schedule and their route for the day and kind of juggling that. By making that easy, it saves them a lot of time. They can spend that time on productive activities like selling and lo and behold, sales go up. That's great. And so what's your background story? How did you come up with the idea? So my background was in field sales. I started my career at IBM and then I spent some time at a software company called Autonomy that got bought by HP. and then. I was at Google for years working on selling their software products, their suite of software. And in that time, I focused in on Google Maps and did a lot with Google Maps. And so I had the sales background and then I'd done a lot of working with maps and mobile mapping. And so I had a good feel for where the market was going on mapping. And that helped me see kind of, well, I understood the problem already because I had had it and I knew a lot of people who had had it just from being in field sales. And I could kind of see a path towards where the puck was going and how you could solve this problem with mobile technology and the Google Maps API. Have you done much market research or was like more your gut? Like, I understand the problem very well and I understand Google Maps and I'm just going to go this direction. No, I, we did do a lot of market research. I think the first thing that we had to understand was just because this is a problem, is it a problem? that people were willing to pay for and were they willing to pay enough to make it worth buying, building a piece of software for. And we also had to size the industry. I mean, I had a 
decent field just because it was my career. And it's, I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious. There's a lot of field salespeople floating around, right? It's the, a lot of companies don't sell their stuff on the internet or in a store. They sell it, you know, business to business and they, it's generally for higher value ticket items or relationships, selling a lot of little things to the same person. The whole relationship's worth a lot. Where does the money come from? And how did you work to fund this business? Yeah, I mean, that's always the big question with bootstrapping, right? Where did the money come from when there was no money? And and I cheated there a little bit. I had a fortunate career at Google. I was their top salesperson for 2009 of software. So I made a fair amount of money when I was over my time at Google. Not in stock, actually, surprisingly, because I joined, they gave me options. And then that's right when their 2008 crisis hit. So the stock dropped. So I didn't make squat in stock. Oh, I made like a hundred grand, which is better than a stick in the eye, right? You take the hundred grand, but compare like my little sister's friends that joined there straight out of college is like administrative assistants made millions and millions of dollars. So, cause 2003, right? So I joined five years later and got squat basically. So, <laughs> but I did get a lot of commissions off the, the software sales that I was fortunate to make. And some of that was skill. Some of that was luck for sure. But that's where a lot of the money came from that kind of started getting the ball rolling. So I needed three employees and me, an engineer, the guy that made the stuff, a product slash general technologist who I think really laid out a lot of what the product was going to work, look like, and designed it and strategized around it a lot. And a guy who's kind of general business side doing things. And then I had me. So paying for those three guys and then, and I wasn't paying me right place, right time. I took that hundred grand that I got from Google and I threw it into Amazon when I left Google because I was like, oh, this stuff's undervalued. And that's Amazon was like 180. And so it's just, I kept, that was just my ATM machine for like five years. I just kept taking 20 Gs out at a time. And the nice thing about capital gains is they don't tax them that high. So back to the Amazon well and kept taking out 20 grand and that lasted for years. So, and then eventually I started paying myself 50 Gs a year, 53, I think. But that's where the money came from was just, I had saved money up. And also I did like a $400,000 friends and family convertible note round where you go and you, your uncle who thinks you're smart gives you 10 Gs to start the business. And, and that's good and that's bad, right? It's really, these businesses are risky when they're starting. And I felt pretty good at it by the time. I didn't do that convertible note right away. Like I had gotten it fairly down the line. It sucks to start a business that you're not really sure of or, or raise the money from your grandma before you're really sure about it because most people aren't sophisticated enough to understand the risk of these things like if you ask grandma what's riskier you know investing in this bank that's on in the news for being shaky or this startup she's going to say oh probably riskier the bank i mean they're in the news for being risky and you're like no 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 this is way riskier we are way way riskier <laughs> so you want to be careful you do kind of want to be careful about this, I think, because you don't want to take money from people that aren't sophisticated. And so the friends and family around, I think you want to tread lightly there. But I was pretty confident by the time we did that. And so that was like probably 400 grand there. And that was actually mostly from sophisticated people who were, they knew what they were doing. But I think that's such a great insight for founders starting their business, you know, because if everything goes south and there's a huge chance that everything could go south, you want to go back and look at those people and be like, you knew where you were getting yourself into. You were a sophisticated investor. I think that's why there's such a thing as an accredited investor, right? Make sure that they know what they're doing. Yeah, accredited. Basically, don't take money from people that don't need it, right? 
or don't take money. If they need the money, don't take the money because they may not understand the risk. And I think that was, it's easy to convince grandma to give you money, but you might not want grandma's money. So yeah, anyway, that's where the money came from. And a real shot in the arm for us came uh, two years after I started the business. I sold a $310,000, $12,000 deal to a big med device company and they had 350 sales reps or something. And they bought for three years up front. And the way I got them to pay a startup with four guys working at it, 312 grand was contractually, I was not going to sell to their two biggest competitors for three years. What's funny is their competitors still haven't bought, but <laughs> but I promised I wouldn't sell sell to their two biggest competitors for three years. And they were like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll pay for three years up front then. And that paid for like all of 2014, basically. I mean, we had to do a little more of, we had some other small customers that made up the difference, but that kept the peanut butter and ramen flowing for 2014. Then the rest was just, you know, growing over time. The other thing that we could talk about, I I have used debt as well. And so I could talk about that. Yeah. How was, because many times people are afraid of using debt. So how was using debt to grow your business and what did you learn? I think people should be afraid of uh, using debt because when you're a startup, a lot of the debt products that you can get are very expensive and expensive debt products are very risky because the problem with debt is you have to pay it back. Beauty of equity is you don't. You sold part of your company, but you don't have to pay it back. You got to pay the debt back and you got to pay it back on time or literally you lose your company, right? So, Or your home because sometimes those debts even have a security, a personal guarantee. Well, I'd be very careful about that. If you lose your home, your spouse is not going to let you start another company. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a spouse after that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I never personally guaranteed any of these loans. I think you shouldn't. Most personally guaranteed loans, those are pretty risky. I know a lot of people that have put their house up and gotten a loan and started a business and it's worked out, but I think it doesn't work out more often than not. That's a big hit, right? So. I guess, okay, so debt. I've done probably $6 million in debt over the course of Badger's life. And we make like $5.5 million in ARR today to give you an idea of scale because there's a relationship between how much debt you can get and how large your company is. So I don't have $6 million in debt today, but I've moved it in and out. So I've got like, I've got $3 million in debt today. And like I said, we make like five and a half a year. And that's kind of the max ratio that I think you can take out. If you make a million dollars a year, no one's going to loan you $2 million, right? If you make a million bucks a year, you can get probably a four or $500,000 loan. And if you're creating SaaS, there are some providers of loans to SaaS companies who really understand SaaS. You can't just go to the bank and get a loan. Although Silicon Valley Bank blew up this week and it's mid-March right now. So I guess they blew up last week. But the essential reason they blew up, well, besides... VCs triggered a bank run by all telling them their investors to pull their money out. But what happened was they had all these locked in bets at 1.5% yields. And then those locked in bets went down in value. They were long-term government bonds. So as the interest rates rose, the things they were holding became worth less. If they held them to liquidity or to maturity, they would get their 1.5% a year. But if they had to sell them earlier, they have to take the hit. And they had to make some sales. They started taking hits. And the VCs were like, oh, this is scary. And all the people that had $5 million bucks sitting in that bank to pull it out, which they go under right away when that happens. How long did it take you to build the first version of your product? 
And I always like to know, and I like the Republic with numbers, from that first version, how long did it take it to get to the first million? Good question. I think we got to our first million in 2016 or 2017, and I started the company in 2012. So a long time. We grew. I do know this data point. It took us till mid-2017 to grow as much, as to get as much revenue as we grew last year. So that's the good news with SaaS is that it compounds, right? Like it does in fact get easier. The first five years are really hard because there's not enough money and you're stretched. This gets to the question of we're talking about debt. We're talking, you know, how much money do you make? We're scraping by. Why didn't you just raise equity? Why not just bring in, go to a venture capitalist and say, Hey, let me sell you 20% of the business for, for four or 10 grand. Four or ten million bucks, right? And and the answer is VCs won't invest in you unless it's a very hot space as a SaaS company, unless you have a certain amount of traction. So they by 2017, we could have raised venture money, right? Because we had a million bucks a year coming in. We had the traction that they want to see. We had nice growth. But most people in finance are they want to loan you an umbrella unless it's raining, right? So when we needed the money, they didn't want to give us the money by the time we they would give us the money. We didn't need the money. So, And I think even today, we may raise outside capital. And, and you can always do that, right? I mean, a lot of the private equity firms really get interested around $10 million a year in ARR. And they get even more interested at 15 especially if you've got some profitability. Then you're really in their suite. You come into their sweet spot. There's a few that'll come in at like $5 million in ARR, but that's the smaller ones. Not as many will come in that early. But for venture, I mean... They don't necessarily want to invest unless you're a really interesting space. You can spend, they all want to talk to you forever. Like I, you know, in 2014, I tried to raise venture money and I talked to a hundred of these guys. I was in the Bay Area and I was connected to the right people. So they would all talk to me, but all of them across the board, they didn't want to give you any money until it's not an especially exciting space, right? Like we do a night, we do a thing that is useful for a lot of people, but it's not, we're not changing the world by making salespeople a bit more efficient. I mean, we make their lives more efficient, more profitable, but we don't, this isn't quantum computing or anything, right? So they wanted more traction. And just, I spent a lot of time in conversations with all these guys because they all love to talk. The way that I see it, they're looking for the SaaS product that's going to go for a hundred million plus, but there's so many SaaS products that's going to make 10. They don't care for those, but like for you as the founder, $10 million SaaS, it's amazing for them. It's a total failure. Right. Well, it's not because they're greedy jerks. It's their business model, right? Like, let's use even easier numbers. You raise $100 million for a venture capital firm. You're going to invest in 10 businesses, $10 million each. So you're going to come in for 10 A rounds and spend $10 million on 10 A rounds. So you've got 100 million. If eight of those are going to go to zero because they're risky investments, those last two if you want to triple your fund, those last two have to sell for a hundred. Your piece has to sell for 150 million each, right? Because you want to, that wouldn't even do it. 100 million, you want to triple your fund to get it to 300 million. Their economics are hard. It's hard to be a VC. They're not just greedy jerks. So you want to triple your fund. You got to get 300 million out of these 10 businesses that you've made an investment in. You only own 20% of each of them. So two of them need to sell for 1.5 billion. There aren't that many unicorns, right? So, and that's coming at the A round and selling for a unicorn. That's really hard to do. They need really big wins to cover all their losses. 
And so it's great for the SaaS founder if you sell your business for 50 million bucks and you owned half of it. You just made $25 million. Bro, that's all you need. You only need $25 million one time. But for them, they bought 20% of it for 5 million or 10 million. You selling for 50 means they just made 5 million or they made 10 million, but they, they put in 10. So that it's not a win, right? Like they're just getting their money back if they came in for a $50 million valuation with $10 million and then you sell for $50 million. So they'll, and that's important because they'll block that. They'll say, no, you can't do that. They have that power. They have the right to block a deal. And so that's one of the problems with raising equity is you're not aligned with them. You wanted to sell for 50. They don't want to sell for 50. And so that's a real challenge. That's why we have to be very comfortable. And I see now all the time, like as I'm doing this show, founders that had an exit and then they go to the second business and now they really want to go big. And then they go and raise a bunch of money. But now you're more aligned because now you're rich, your investors are rich, you're both rich, and you don't want to sell the company right now. And so that's why founders have to really think about it. If I'm going to raise money, now I'm making a commitment to myself and to my investors that I'm going to build a billion dollars company. And if I'm not rich yet, that's a problem because they're rich and you're not and you're in different teams. And then that's also why many times I see, and if you look at the data, people that build successful VC companies, they do come from a little bit of money because they don't need it. <laughs> you know, So you have to really think about that uh, if you're going that route. Because like so you say, they're not bad, but it's a different game. And what game do you want to play as a founder? That's the question you have to answer yourself. Yeah. And you've got to look at your SaaS too. Like some things... There's a lot of opportunities to build SaaS businesses that get sold for $20 million and $50 million. There's just a lot of them because VC won't invest in it, right? It's not big enough. It's not important enough. It's a small problem that you solve for a handful of people. But there's a lot of those out there. There's a lot of problems that are worth $20 million, right? A lot of $20 million problems that nobody's going after. And that's great for the founder, but VCs stay away from it. And that's why they're all there because no one's done them yet, right? And so that's why... This space has made so many people 5, 10, 15, 50 million dollars as founders because there's a lot of meaningful problems that you can solve now that we have the ability to build cool software and the ability to deliver cool software. When I started my career, we didn't have iPhones to deliver software on. We didn't have the browser to deliver software through. Software was just a lot harder. The last 20 years has been so great because we have all these ways to make software, we have cloud computing, we have the way to deliver it, like it, all the pieces are there. So someone just has to string it together and tremendous value is created. But often it's not VC quality value. And you don't want to be misaligned because if it looks like you're going in the direction of a $50 million exit, they're going to try to change the company to do something big. They're going to want you to go in a different direction, take a big risk and potentially have a really big exit because that's what their business model needs. Whereas you might've wanted to go with the thing that nine out of 10 times was going to work and make you $25 million. You wanted to do that. And they're like, no, 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 let's go for this thing. That's one out of 10 times going to make 1.5 billion. That's what we want to do. And go back to the odds conversation that you were having, right? Do you want to increase your odds? You have to play your odds. And if you're going the route, the investors, they don't mind. Like you say, it's okay. Most of their companies are going to go out of business anyway. Do you want to run a business that could go out of business or do you want to run a business that it's going to be successful, but it's not going to be as big? Next question for you. So what's like the first oh shit moment that come to mind from the early days of your SaaS? I think 
just in general, like payroll, money, not having enough money in the bank has always been a challenge for us and for most bootstrap founders, right? It's you are always running into, oh, we really need to buy this or, oh, we have to pay for this or, oh, this vendor just totally screwed us. Like every single time, I swear to God that we've had a platform that we're using, they've screwed us. You need something in your software to do this one thing. They always triple the price eventually. Like they <laughs> triple the price and make you go annual. And we've left a lot of vendors because of stuff like that and switched to one of their competitors who eventually will screw you too. It's hard to these inner... I think especially VC-founded businesses, they if you get in bed with a platform that is a VC-founded business, eventually the VCs are like, well, why can't... We really need to make these numbers. Can't we just screw all your customers? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, whereas like someone like Amazon hasn't... The, Amazon's never screwed us. We, we run on AWS, but they've never screwed us. But like every like Series B company that had some platform, some component of what we do, Every time they're like, oh, well, this year we're, you're going to have to renew annually. And by the way, it's 3x the price because you've crossed this threshold that we made up. And so I guess those, the oh shit moments for me have mostly involved money and needing money. That makes total sense. So like I'm using this API and now it's a lot more expensive. So this has been a great conversation. I have one final question that I like to ask everyone that comes on the show. What's a book that you recommend for founders? It doesn't have to be a business book, but what book do you recommend that founders should read? For SaaS founders, if you haven't read Impossible to Inevitable, you really should. That's Jason Lemkin's book, and that's a great one. That's my recommendation. Yeah, that's a great book. It's a follow-up on the Predictable Revenue. I love that book. I had Aaron on my podcast years ago. He's a great guy. I have a podcast for field salespeople, so he, and he's like a sales thought leader, so I had him on years ago. He's a really sharp dude. Nice. So if people want to learn more about you, found you, what's the best way to do it? Well, if they're interested in learning about Badger or you know any field salespeople who might be, just check out Badger. Just you know, Google Badger Maps, you'll find us. If you're looking for me, LinkedIn's probably the best place to get a hold of me. Just search on LinkedIn, Steve Benson, Badger Maps. And my podcast is Outside Sales Talk. If you're a field salesperson, that might be interesting. Awesome. Steve, thank you very much for your time today. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Take care. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.